So we've been on quite a long journey together this week. It sort of feels like about 10 years. <laughs> I just realize I feel a little bit tired. <laughs> Very um, meaningful and beautiful to meet everyone and to practice together in this way and also um, it's been challenging uh, but not uh, a um, challenge that's been without um, good results really Um, and perhaps one of those results (laughs) is becoming a bit more realistic about what this path um, yeah, involves yeah, to pace ourselves accordingly so that uh, we don't set ourselves up for undue struggle and a sense of failing and self-judgment and those kinds of internal saboteurs that undermine our well-being and all the good efforts and good energy and wholesome seeds that have been planted through our path activity. I mentioned the other night a very dear friend of ours, Sister Abigail Tleko, in uh, South Africa, who spent most of her life in community service from a very young age, still going in her 80s. Um, when she won the Unsung Hero Award and was flown to San Francisco to receive it from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And uh, these are, this is an award given to, literally, to unsung heroes, people from all over the world that are nominated. You don't get to hear about, they're not celebrities or they're not in the newspapers, but they do amazing work. Um, And one of the things that she told us when she came back was that I can't remember how many nominees, uh, 50 to 90, something like that, that, uh, that he said, you know, t- um, to, you know, congratulating everyone on their work and saying, you know, don't think of it so much about what you're doing and the good work you're doing as it being a benefit for you, but think about it as planting seeds for future generations for those that come after you. And that's a really um, helpful way to context our practice and what we're doing on this earth, (laughs) what we think we're doing, (laughs) trying to do, not to do if you're a Buddhist. (laughs) And to not get overly fixated on me and my journey and my big, you know, enlightenment project, all of which... (laughs) All of which is important, of course. We spent the week here doing what we've done, but, you know, to hold it somewhat lightly. I have a, a brother here in England who is very respectful of what I do, but I don't think he'd ever come on retreat. And he rings me up every so often. And he goes, how's the enlightenment thing going? Have you made it yet? <laughs> I said, I'll ring me back later. <laughs> Uh, 
So the path activity, you know, this cultivation this week, we've explored many different dimensions of it and remembering as we started the retreat, Maka Hatakilesawa, that the cultivation of the path breaks up Hatakilesa, that which obstructs Patu Upatitamatang, which means that the fruits of that path activity arise according to the Dhamma, arise according to the natural unfolding of the Dhamma. We don't have to push, the, push that piece. We're just concerned by planting and cultivating this path activity in, in this moment, really. It's just each moment. And to be as present as we can for this moment is fundamentally the heart of the practice. Present in a particular kind of way, present with this cultivation of placing attention here within the reality of our embodied experience, being receptive to what is present and interacting with what is present through this mindful, contemplative, investigative inquiry. And as we've been exploring, there's a lot that's present for us and a lot that we can work with. As Ajahn Chah was saying, catching what arises in the net of our mindfulness and discerning wisely before we react. So in that um, process also, as we've explored through the week, through this cultivation, and to be more, more capacity, cultivating more capacity for what is difficult to be with, but also noticing as we look more precisely and investigate what's actually arising, that it reveals its own spacious, unconstructed nature. Can't quite grasp, can't quite hold on to the moments. Keeps running through our fingers like water through our hands. And so rather than this movement to keep trying to hold been encouraging the last few days to really turn the mind back into itself, the heart to recognize its own nature, present, reflective, unmoving, peaceful, even with that which isn't peaceful and with that which is moving, contemplating, as the Kittisara finished, it's last night's beautiful Dharma talk, this teaching of Master Xinhua, that a wonderful existence doesn't exist because of emptiness. Emptiness isn't empty because of wonderful existence. It's non-dual suchness where there are no ultimate splits. So it's sort of deepening into First, we might hear that, and it sounds like, what does that mean? <laughs> but to to keep considering and allowing this to deepen into our contemplation. This uh, activity, wise contemplation, the. Um, Fruit of wisdom, as is uh, also we've uh, looked at, is the ground for um, 
activity, for our activity, for our response, informs our response. And part of that uh, response is this being resonant, more resonant with the actuality of what we might call the world. The world of our body first, and then the world of contact, the world within the relational field, the world around us. So this path isn't so much about just trying to avoid that contact, but learning to skillfully be in contact, changing the relationship to what we're in contact with, from just our assumptions and our reactivity to reflecting through this wisdom. When we first begin the path, he's talking about motivation, what can motivate us. When we first begin this activity, often we come from a place, we start because we want some kind of, we talk about these different levels of motivation and exploring how we can deepen our motivation. We often begin with this uh, idea of, I just, I, I would like some kind of um, something. <laughs> You know, I need to get something that I don't have, some sort of fulfillment, some sort of peace, some sort of clarity. And that's, that's some knowledge, maybe health, maybe power, maybe success. You know, that, uh, a lot of spirituality in the marketplace is geared towards that kind of outcome. You know, maybe just be a bit more functional would actually be quite nice. <laughs> and all the other things on top of that, that would be great. But this, uh, this, we come very much from the sense of me needing something, a feeling of lack, and that's a, that's a real place. Um, to want to live more peacefully, happily. That's, a, that's, a, that's not to put that motivation down, and it's not to put that, seeking that down. And, you know, that's something that we can actually, you know, the Buddha did teach the teachings for us. It was mentioned the, the other night for the, pathway to heaven, which meaning the pathway to bringing about uh, good results in our life through understanding how to better take care of the causes set in place. And that this practice of mindful investigation, Dharma contemplation is one of the most powerful causes we can put in place for transforming our life and bringing about fruits of the Dhamma. So there is a good motivation, but however, if we don't have a deeper motivation when we run into difficulty, as we've known this week, you know, we all experienced some kinds of challenges, some of them quite profound, and some of them very, having a lot of momentum in them. They seem to have been there forever. They're really strong obstructions, nearly knocking us out of the retreat and feel like you know, waste of time, it's not working, or being overwhelmed, or just a struggle. So when we come across these challenges, if we don't have a deeper motivation, if it's just, I just want a pleasant result, then we, we give up. We lose energy, we lose momentum. So then the motivation at a certain point has to be informed by a more wiser, realistic understanding of the nature of the journey of awakening, that it's not so much about avoiding, 
But actually, as Ajahn Chah would say, realizing that the difficulty is the path, the distraction and the obstruction is the ground for awakening. And with that understanding, then there's a shift of attitude and relationship. We can begin to not only try and meet the dukkha as uh, the doorway for transformation, but we can even sometimes welcome it, usually after the fact. But <laughs> but we can, you know, be a little bit more on top of it by saying, actually, this has presented itself to me. And by the time I go through this, I, you know, I approach it uh, with wise discernment, investigation, and the skills that we've been learning, then it will strengthen. It will grow more capacity, more unshakability. I won't just have to keep avoiding. I know I can work through the, the, the difficulties that life presents. And so, you know, in psychological terms, we might call this meeting the shadow, the parts of ourself that we have pushed away, that we bury, that we split away from. And eventually we understand that actually through the activity of embracing these aspects um, of ourself, we start to enter the path of integration because in all of these energies and obstructions there's some sort of locked up energy there's some sort of vitality that needs to be reclaimed and released from that which is obstructed and sort of gone into a constricted place and held within our sometimes within our energy body sometimes psychologically sometimes mentally So then we have more juice for the path. It becomes then a longer and uh, undertaking. We can pace ourselves, recognizing that it's not just sort of an up and up and away kind of approach. Or that when we experience difficulty, it's not that something's gone wrong because we lost our peaceful meditation, that actually something's going right. You know, this is how it is. It's sort of, yeah. Sometimes working through some of these deep, as we've been talking about, some of these very deep patternings, deep sankharic material, very primary, emerging from some very primary wounds or places in the self-structure that are connected with uh, fear and um, longing, uh, feeling abandoned, these kinds of inner... um, given inner tone and inner feeling. Some of them take a lot of patience and care and careful working with to to actually, before they begin to uh, soften and open and release. And so we're with some of these patternings for a long time. I remember when I was young and I used to go and listen to Krishnamurti as a non-dual teacher I like very much when he was teaching Petersfield at his school there near Petersfield and he would say if you've seen it once it's finished I don't think that worked for me <laughs> I'd like to think it would work for me but now, you know I have to confess I have to look at things uh, some of these obstructions many 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 times um, until you Till you get to the place when you don't need it to finish, really. 
And it's, you know, when, when, we, when we get to that place, then we start to get an inkling for this third level or more profound level of motivation, the sort of motivation that the Dalai Lama was communicating to our friend Sister Abigail, which was, you know, not so much orientating the whole endeavor around you, around the, the me getting somewhere, the me fixing myself, um, the me that's lost where I was trying to get to and the me that can't remember where I was trying to get to in the first place. I'm going to go and ask someone, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> I don't know, go and ask someone else. <laughs> and this is this, this motivation of compassion, the energy of compassion. So I'd like to really reflect a little bit on that um, tonight is uh, this, you know, this this uh, compassion informed by wisdom, the wisdom to understand in reality that this this me, although there is there is a self structure and we take care of it and we, you know, we therapize it and we place it and we sort of um, function through it and you know it's wonderfully dramatic most of the time and suffering like hell at other times and <laughs> you know it's an amazing thing the psychological self and self-structure very important like the body but it's based on you know on a deep in terms of reality it's, it's if we base our understanding of of who we are just on that then it's a it's a false assumption because it, you know it's it's full of um holes and discrepancies and conditioned so we're trying to uh, rescue a self that on some level actually you know according to reality doesn't have um, doesn't really exist (laughs) I don't know how else to put it (laughs) it's a lot of energy isn't it for that (laughs) it does of course so it exists and it doesn't so that you know, we the, the, then there's sort of the, then we start to maybe you know as we shift out of the obsessiveness and reactivity and the clinging and the constriction around the self structure, we turning the mind into what is knowing all of this, this fundamental ground of consciousness, conscious awareness, that is you know illuminating all of this, and we turn the mind into that. You know, one of the things that the great Zen master Dogen said that enlightenment is the intimacy of all things. And it's not, you know, we can turn our mind into, it sounds like this emptiness can sound like, oh, it's just a void. It's just nothing there. It's a cold, unwelcoming place. And as we're contemplating that the emptying of the grasping of the mind starts to recognize the ground of awareness presence that there is that which is actually very alive in the web of life interconnected breath we're breathing it's not our breath the breath is breathing us and nourishment from the from the earth, that the thoughts that I'm sharing with you are not my, really, I'd like to think they're original thoughts. (laughs) Maybe a few of them are, but mostly, you know, they're thoughts that have come into my mind, going into your mind, uh, that uh, 
the breath that we're sharing, the air that we're sharing, that we're living in, the reality is that we're not just an independent, isolated entity, which is what the separative consciousness leads us to feel. But we're, we're in a deep web of life, interconnected web of life. And that interconnected web of life is actually seamless. It, you know, we pull a piece out and we name a piece and it becomes a distinct, discrete entity through our naming of it, but actually it's in relationship with everything else. The tree with the ground, with the earth, the earth, with the, uh, with the water and the rain and the warmth of the sun and so on. When we sort of touch into that, then there's a sort of opening into this field, relational field, which is which we live within, we breathe within, we move within. That's why Mastawa, when he first came uh, to England in the 1980s to visit the, the monastery where we trained, and um, no, actually, I think it was when you first, when Kitty Saro first went to visit their monastery with some monks from our. There was a lot of interchange between that tradition and the tradition we trained in, which is why we've been working with those practices and bringing them together for many years. Um, the master had a great impact on us. And Kitty Saro had the opportunity with a group of monks to go to California to the city of 10,000 Buddhas where master, which Master Xunhua founded. And the master came to the airport to, to meet them. And Kitty Saro, uh, when he met the master, had great faith and inspirations. He'd read a lot about Master Wa and was very excited, so I'm telling you a story. <laughs> and... <laughs> He, when when he saw the master, he, he bowed and he said to the master, he didn't know what to say, so he said, do you like it here? <laughs> I mean, what do you say to a master? I mean, it's good as anything, isn't it, really? Do you like it here? <laughs> and the, the master said, I like it everywhere. <laughs> that, that's, the, that's someone that's go, gone beyond choosing better places to be. <laughs> That's someone that knows he's always in the web of life. That's someone that knows he's always in the right place. Yeah. That's the non-dual mind, the non-discriminating mind, being with how it is. And not only being with how it is, but being in relationship with how it is, empathetically. So this, this bodhicitta is called this cultivation of this uh, motivation. For the awakening, someone's talking about what is the purpose. Um, well, what about helping to protect a sustainable world? That's a good purpose <laughs> for the generations to come for the children that will come? What about protecting the animal kingdom from this unbelievable, 
decimation and slaughter it's going through, and extinction, protecting biodiversity as it's uh, being decimated for to sustain our unconscious ways of living. What about taking our awakening, not only for our own personal journey, but understanding there's a collective aspect to this, that we're not isolated beings, that we're engaged in a collective journey, actually of awakening. What about seeing through that lens, particularly as we begin to contemplate taking this work into the world out there, the real world. Someone says, that when I go back to the real world, I thought this one was the real one, but anyway, <laughs> that world. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, this is this, what we're doing here, Ajahn Chah said, this is, uh, you know, what we're doing here is preparation for the real practice. When, when, when the intensity hits and we go into reactivity and we get lost, this is the training ground. You know, the the practice continues and the challenge is that we meet, become, you know, our training ground in the intensity of our times. These are very intense times that we live within. There's a, a lot at stake at the moment. And it's, it's, uh, it's not just a personal dukkha, but there's a very profound collective dukkha. So when we open the mind, we start to to recognize that, you know, there's a lot of dukkha. And there's causes for that dukkha that perhaps we can interact with and help, uh, you know, we live within systems. And some of those systems are very unconscious. And as we awaken in those systems and collectively awaken more and more and tolerate unconscious uh, and refuse to tolerate unconscious systems then it helps to awaken the system so one can think of oneself as we start to go out into the world around us as sort of part of the immunity of these systems are waking up to change the systems we live within so that they don't generate suffering and injustice and lack of health and well-being, not just for ourselves and ours, me and mine, but for the collective. So that's that's not without a life without purpose. That's not a practice without application. And we have examples of that right with the Buddha, who did everything that he could. Moments of... Um, yeah, there were moments when he had enough and escaped, but, you know, he also worked with the society, with his family, with his friends, the community, and he worked to change things, he worked to teach, he worked to alleviate suffering, he worked to uplift, he worked to protect, he worked to heal, he worked to enlighten. So this is all part of the application of the path. But it's rooted, all of this rooted is, in some ways it's not so much about changing systems, but the consciousness that infuses the worlds that we live in. Where do we come from when we're engaged? What's the quality of our engagement, quality of our wise reflection, our compassionate resonance? 
or curiosity and investigation. So this 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 way of um, the bodhicitta, the way of the is is interested. Is it starts to become interested um, and realizing, as a, as a, the Dalai Lama said to Sister Abigail, that you know that a lot of what we're doing is also about what we are setting in motion for the future. And so when we think of it like that, it helps to take this sort of extra struggle um, out of orientating the whole awakening journey around my process. (laughs) Not that that's not important. And it helps this sort of pacing and patience. The kind of patience that's willing to be with how it is. And create and generating the capacity for that. Coming into relationship, been um, reflecting on these qualities of of heart, both that are natural to the unobstructed heart, mind, that arise naturally, the resonance of kindness, metta, the resonance of compassion, karuna, the resonance of joy or sometimes also understood as not only wishing for the alleviation of suffering, but also working to support the success of others, the betterment of others. Mudita, and then the resonance of upeka, which means uh, equanimity, or learning to be more equal with the conditions that we experience. And so the practice of compassion, the practice of the heart is around classically around these territories, cultivation of these territories. And these can only really, they can arise in our meditative uh, process as with this morning, you know, extending them out as a vibration into the world around us. But the, the maturing of these qualities really happen in the relational field because that's where we're really tested. This quality of compassion I was uh, very um, inspired uh, when we first went to uh, South Africa in 1994, just at a time of incredible political upheaval. We were invited there to to teach some uh, meditation retreats. We didn't realize we were going to land up working there so much um, and still are working there. <laughs> Um, and at that time, there was uh, there there was the it was right at the end of the apartheid government, and there was an incredible release of both euphoria but also violence. Like often, when these these very repressive regimes suddenly, well, it didn't suddenly collapse. Actually, there was quite a process around it. But from the outside, maybe it looked like it was a, a more of a sudden shift. 
um, that, that often there's a lot of turmoil that follows. So it was a very difficult feel to enter into a lot of trauma, um, a lot of complexity, a lot of reactivity. And in the midst of all that, we had the example, the living example, and which was very inspiring to us, of Mr. Mandela, who was a, a consciousness in the heart of this tumultuous process that was very, very illuminating. He, he lifted, really, a whole country, and he was able to do that because he'd spent 27 years of his life <laughs> imprisoned uh, unfairly, um, unjustly, and had used that time not to just become more and more bitter and more and more angry and more and more focused on revenge, but had used that time to extraordinary limitation, if you've ever been, to see the um, cell that he spent a lot of his time in on Robin Island. It's about six feet by about four feet. He's a big man, I mean, on, in all sorts of ways, big man physically, but a big man energetically, so he was trapped. And you know, if you ever get to read his book and the lessons he distilled, there's a very wonderful book called uh, 15 Lessons, Mr. Mandela, or something like that. But anyway, um, they're really, in terms of guidance for a lifestyle, um, for being in this world or living with intensity, they're really important lessons. And all of that was, was he was able to take such a big obstru obstruction, um, such a huge condition of difficulty and transmute it into this incredible consciousness. So when he came out of prison, he, he said... Um, you know, like hating your enemies is like drinking poison, hoping it will kill them. <laughs> or, you know, when he left, it's like, I'm leaving this prison and I'm leaving hatred because that's a, that's a prison. So this leaving, leave, you know, this, this choice, making a conscious choice to work towards moving beyond this is the activity of compassion, moving beyond the grudges, the places we hold, the pettiness of the mind, the desire for revenge. They're, they're very natural, and I'm sure he felt them. Anger. And, and then working through that, you make the conscious choice. It's not to say they're not felt. Like in the metta practice, one of the trainings is to not to consciously not you might feel we feel aversion of course we do we can feel hatred we can feel um, irritation but to consciously uh, to to intend not to dwell in those places not to make much of that not to keep stoking that but to meet that energy with non-contention with kindness and with and to meet the suffering with with compassion. So Mr. Mandela was able to come out of that and see what had been an extremely and still is to in many ways still working through a very wounded, very great wounding um, due to colonialism and all the follow-on legislation 
of apartheid, but was able to actually come out of that and hold the whole as a collective. He wasn't splitting anything or anyone, which would have been natural to do, but he was like, this is, you're all my children, this is, we are a family, and we will work with this together. So he, you know, it it's, didn't last forever, because, <laughs> but he gave, he gave an example on the world stage of bringing these, this very practical spirituality in response um, in a, in, to a, a very conflicted situation and was able to help. This is one person's, the effect of one person, and there are many others, and he grew out of a movement, but was able to hold uh, a lamp at a certain point in history, not forever, and is n- not the end of problems by any means, but to hold a lamp for humanity and as an example for those to come. And so we shouldn't really underestimate the power of our, each of us, our ability to work with what obstructs us personally and collectively. And as we work with that, that the, the, the result of that can actually become an inspiration for others. Maybe we don't even see that. Maybe we won't see it. And even if it's not seen, can on a vibrational level, can actually help hold a space of of sanity, of goodness, uh, of health, of wisdom, of kindness. And those qualities, when they're eroded, you know, it becomes the kind of world that we're seeing in so many places now. It becomes very desperate. You know, it's just about survival. It's just about getting as much as you can. And that's not a world that we really want to encourage and develop because it's, it gets very ugly and very harsh. There's a beautiful uh, moment in The Lord of the Rings, which, epic, love it, when uh, <laughs> yearly required viewing. <laughs> when Frodo has got his ring of power and he's struggling to Mordor, you know, to throw it in the fire and all that. And, you know, he, he's, he's, he, he's Sam, his faithful attendant, that sort of represents the, the faithful human heart um, attending to, to this massive undertaking that has to happen and Frodo has to do it and everyone else has you know fallen away the fellowship's you know gone to pieces and and Frodo's like I can't do this it's too difficult I can't do this and Sam says well you you can't give up you know it's it's you, you know there's these are like the tales of old these old struggles and you know it always came right and you know, you can't, you, you can't give up at this point and you must keep going. And Frodo asks a very human question and he says, what, why, what's the point, I can't do it, you know, I, I don't know, why should I? <laughs> That's a really good question, why should I? <laughs> you know, it's too difficult, you know, I'm just going to crawl back under my duvet in the morning.
And and Sam says, because there's goodness and it's worth fighting for. And I really love that answer, because there's goodness. This is this mudita. It's this this seeing the goodness, not just the, the hellish stuff, but seeing the goodness in ourselves, not giving up on ourselves, firstly. You know, just listening to my mind and many of your minds, <laughs> and many, many minds over years of this practice, there's this terrible, I don't know why, this is, well, I, I could go into a whole diagnostic, but this terrible sort of giving up on ourselves, terrible berating of ourselves. You know, it's like these, I'm looking at some of these beautiful beings that, you know, come in and, oh, you're beautiful, actually. No, I'm just so terrible and hopeless, I'm a hopeless case. No, but you're actually quite beautiful. <laughs> I remember this story of talking about the name Crawley Baba the other day and Ramdas. And Ramdas goes to to um, this great saint, incredible saint named Kauri Baba, who was his guru, and goes, I, "I'm just, you know, I'm 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 bad, <laughs> useless." And named Kauri Baba just kind of walks around him and just looks him up, looks him down, looks him here, keeps walking around. And he says, "I don't see anything bad." <laughs> There's goodness. Uh, goodness. You know, this good intention, this, this beauty in us and in each other. Yeah, we can, we all get lost, we can all hurt each other, we can all do horrible things. The Buddha said, you know, if we saw into all the lifetimes, we've all done horrible things. Yeah, we can, and we, as humans, we can do terrible things. And, uh, and, and yet we can do wonderful things. And even the most terrible things that are done, it doesn't deflect from the fundamental goodness of the heart. That it's there somewhere. It's goodness in the world. Each day we get these reports of all the horrible things, but there's also beauty, goodness, helping each other, uplifting each other. And this is the cultivation of that, the attunement to that. There's beauty in nature, there's beauty in art, there's beauty in music, there's beauty in humor, and so to see that too and to bring that and cultivate that in life as a, as a way of also helping to counteract the struggle and the suffering and the difficulty. In this, in the, this willingness with this cultivation of this divine heart, divine abiding, to this, this equanimity. It's really this very, very deep, it's a very, it's a, it's a very important quality because it's a sort of doorway into this, the non-differentiated, into the place of deep peace. It's a doorway where we allow, at a very profound level, allow things to be as they are. It doesn't mean to say we don't respond, we don't try and change things, but it's very different when we change things from a place of first allowing and seeing what are we actually changing here, what's happening here. So equanimity is uh, listening in and realizing that actually, even when we try to change everything, we might not succeed. <laughs> yeah. We might not make it better. 
we might not save this world. You know, there's a lot of forces and a lot of karma and a lot of momentum that's beyond our control. Uh, world systems collapse, extinctions happen, they've happened before, planets implode. <laughs> it's all very fragile and uncertain. And so the equanimity is a mind and a heart and a training that can withstand. We do what we do for the best outcome and then we apply equanimity because we can't control that outcome. We can't even control it within our own lives. This body is prone to all sorts of vulnerabilities, decay and so on. Relationships prone to change. So to be willing to be with the beauty and the difficulty and the possibility of loss, the reality of loss, with a more equal, reflective heart, with wisdom. So the Buddha said such a such a path as we've been developing this week, such a heart, grand-hearted, large-hearted, cultivated through these Brahma Viharas. He said it's a bit like, you know, when karmic obstruction arises, <coughs> when action happens that's unwholesome and there's an effect, if one is not well-developed, in these path activities, he said it's a bit like one quickly goes to a difficult place. It's a bit like having a lump of salt in a small glass of water. You can't drink that. It's very bitter. The karmic obstructions are very bitter if there's not this cultivation of the path. And you get lost for a lot longer. But he said with those that cultivate... these qualities of the path cultivate the mind in the way that we've been training, mindfulness, wise reflection, insight, cultivate the heart in the way that is encouraged. He said it's a bit like that same karmic obstruction when it arises, a result of something that's not been done skillfully, It's a bit like that same salt goes into the Ganges. The result appears for a moment and maybe it's painful. You feel, oh, that was painful. (laughs) But then it gets diluted, can be diluted and, and disappears in the flow of the Ganges River, disappears in the flow of the stream of the Dharma. So one has the capacity through this practice to transmute obstruction, not only for ourselves, Uh, but for others, because there are ultimately no others in the ground of awareness. It's just the dukkha and the ending of dukkha. Well, there's more than that, but practice focalizes, can focalize around that theme, whether personal, whether in the broader field of relationship.
just to finish with a very short story. Again from South Africa. It's an example of the application of compassion in the time of intensity, this preparation for when difficult things arise. It was a woman that was hijacked with her child, husband. She's a fairly frequent, can be experienced there, a lot of fear, a lot of violence, difficult ground to be in. And she was sure through the night because of the way the guys were that they wouldn't survive until the morning. And so in this context, she was, you know, obviously felt a lot of fear and for herself, her child, husband, was overcome, overwhelmed with fear. What, what to do? And so what she's been practicing and trying to, you know, figure out. And then she remembered this practice around compassion. And she just started to tune into the guys that were holding them hostage in their violence and threatening behavior. She started to sort of breathe with them and contemplating their actions had come from woundedness. And she started to work in a, she'd done some Buddhist practice, Buddhist metaphor, but then she felt, she was a Christian heritage, she felt Christian connection with the Christ. And she started to breathe and take the suffering she felt in that small toxic space and offering it into this heart, this her heart, heart of Christ, heart of the compassionate listening. And through the night, she was just working like this. And then as the dawn started to rise, the most threatening guy, he just sort of went into a slump and sort of fell asleep for a moment. And then he woke up and he just turned to her and said, thank you. And they, they left. Uh, and she said that she, they got up and they, they looked at the dawn. They were intact. They were okay. And they just felt a miracle had happened. They felt a great sense of blessing. This is a moment of what we're practicing for, fortunately and hopefully not for such a moment, but for whatever we may meet. We don't know what we will meet, that we will know at that moment where to take the mind, to the breath, to resonating with the suffering, to the intentionality that we can work with this and transform it into love.
May we share the blessings from our practice for the welfare of all beings. Whatever circumstance they find themselves in, may their hearts, all hearts, our hearts, all hearts be touched by kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.